Mark. Start either with Malachi or Mark. Chapter 1. <coughs> you see where it starts. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It starts with John, John the Baptist, verse 4. It starts with a scripture from Isaiah and Micah. Pulled together. Uh, verse 2 is actually Malachi. Since, since you asked about Malachi, we're going to talk about Mark, but Malachi is how he starts out. And so he begins with John. The Gospel of Mark has three really significant features. One is it's the Gospel of Action. Uh, Peter preaching in Rome is the Gospel of Mark. Preaching to Gentiles. So it would make no sense for Peter to start out with the genealogy of Jesus because the Romans wouldn't care about that. And according to the early church, there was a man who wrote in 117, name is Papias, uh, one of the early fathers he's called, uh, wrote about Mark and said uh, Mark was summoned to Rome to write down Peter's sermons. And this is probably about the middle of, May, of uh, uh, the 60s A.D. So the first feature about Mark is action. The key word throughout Mark is immediately. Uh, when <clears throat> Jesus goes into the synagogue, immediately there was a man there with a demon. Uh, he begins teaching in the synagogue. Immediately there was a man there with a withered hand. You read through Mark and the word immediately, the Greek word ethus, shows up again and again and again. Uh, so it's about action. Uh, there's very little teaching in Mark, though there is some. I mentioned that there are four, four parables. And these parables are about seeds and gardening. And as you probably know, most of the Christians in Rome were servants, were slaves. And they would meet in the catacombs under Rome, a series of tunnels uh, under the city. And uh, they were pretty well hidden there because the persecution was great at this time. Nero was, was the king. And he was the first one to persecute Christians specifically, picking them out to persecute them. Nero is the one who uh, literally took Christians and tied them to stakes and burned them to light his dinner parties. And as the Christians were being tied to stakes... And as the fire was started, the Christians were singing hymns. And it drove him crazy. And so he would cut their tongues out and then tie them to stakes and burn them. And then they would hum hymns. Uh, he blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. Though most scholars say Nero himself started it. Nero was a pederast. He was a... He loved little boys. Uh, he kept little boys around for sex. Uh, he kicked one of his wives to death. You know, this tells you the kind of person this guy was. He was like an animal being in charge of a country, of a world. Completely out of control. Uh, cared nothing about anything that the gods would say or that God would say. Uh, both Peter and Paul were in Rome. Paul had appealed to Caesar, which means uh, because uh, the Jews were trying to kill him, uh, in the book of Acts, they took a vow that uh, they would not eat or drink anything until they killed the apostle Paul. And they waited for him outside the gate. So Paul found out about this, 
and appealed to Caesar, which means the Romans now, the soldiers, are responsible to get him to Rome. And so they did. If you've read the book of Acts, you know uh, the incredible trip to Rome, uh, the miracles that happens, uh, Paul telling the, the uh, captain, don't set out or you'll be caught in a terrible storm because it's too late going into winter. And the captain said, I think we can make it. But after that, two weeks being blown about on the Mediterranean, uh, throwing all the cargo over, trying to save each other. They hadn't eaten anything for two weeks. They were so busy trying to keep the ship afloat. They ran uh, ropes around the ship, the body of the ship, to uh, hold it together. And uh, Paul saw the soldiers beginning to lower the lifeboats. You know, he's the only guy that I've ever read about who was shipwrecked four times. You ever heard of anybody, you know, shipwrecked four times? It's amazing. You'd think he'd quit going to sea, you know. But this, yeah, he was stubborn. Uh, this pilot, uh, this uh, captain of the of the Romans, didn't listen to him the first time, and it cost them almost their lives. At the end of the storm, with the ship run aground on the island of Malta, uh, the ship began breaking up in the waves. And some men tried to lower a lifeboat, and Paul told the captain, if they lower that boat, they'll be killed. Uh, tell them to stay with the ship, and they'll be saved. And so the captain cut away the lifeboats. At this point, he believed Paul. And so they stayed with the ship, and everybody floated on a plank or something up to the, up to the land. Um, and then finally, after he had done some miracles there on Malta and preached the gospel in Malta, they went on from there to Rome, which was a fairly short trip after that. But the, the captain of that vessel began listening to Paul, uh, finally. When Paul got to Rome, he was kept in a private house. When you're a Roman citizen, you can be chained only if you are called to meet with the emperor. And so he was chained in a, in a private house with four they called them leopards, four Roman soldiers guarding him. Oops. Spill my coffee. In the name of the Father, thank you. I'll put it over here. Quit waving my hands around. <coughs> That's, I'll probably need another one. So... Paul waited to appear before Nero, and that's when the book of Acts ends. Now, the book of Acts is an incomplete work. Luke begins it and ends it in the middle of Paul's incarceration and then sends it on to Theophilus, who uh, was a Roman soldier uh, and, and probably an official of the Romans. So... Then Peter comes to Rome at the same time, and he begins preaching. <clears throat> Peter and Paul had already met. If you've read Galatians, you know Paul confronted Peter about his hypocrisy. Uh, when Peter was in Galatia, he was eating with the Gentiles, what the Gentiles ate, until the Jews from Jerusalem showed up. And then because he was afraid they might condemn him for eating with the Gentiles, he withdrew and ate with the Jews at a different table. And so Paul confronted him in front of everybody. He said, you're basically con you know, uh, a hypocrite. You're, you're condemned because you have... I mean, here's, here's the first pope, you know, being condemned by another apostle who's in the right. Uh, Peter made a mistake. And Paul confronted him for withdrawing from the Gentiles just because the Jews were there. Um, so while Paul was incarcerated, Peter came to Rome, or perhaps Peter was there a little bit earlier, and preached the gospel of Mark. Mark wrote down these words, and the word immediately is a key word. The second key word in the book is the word amazed. If you read the book of Mark and underline all the places it says amazed, you'll be surprised. You'll be amazed at how many 
amazes there are in this book. Uh, the people were amazed at Jesus, the incredible things he did. Now, if you read this first paragraph here, uh, the first uh, chapter of Mark, you'll discover that he not only starts at the beginning of John's ministry and then has Jesus come on the scene immediately to be baptized by John, there's a detail, a little bit of detail about the baptism here. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the number three is God's number. And there are three times in the gospel, in all the gospels, where God speaks. The first time is at his baptism. The second time he speaks almost the same words on the Mount of Transfiguration and terrifies the disciples. He speaks out of a cloud right there to them. And then the third time is in John chapter 12, uh, where Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, and it thundered, some of the people thought. Others said an angel spoke to him. But the reality was God spoke to, to Jesus and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So those are the three times he spoke. One of those is right here at Jesus' baptism, the first one. Uh, John 12. That's the really the transition section in John. John's divided into two parts. The first part is a series of times Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. John's gospel. But the last part in chapter 12, when the Greeks come looking for Jesus, Jesus recognized that as his sign that his hour had come. It's really strange the way that worked. And I'm not sure why that was his sign, but he knew when the Greeks came looking for him, when Gentiles come looking for Jesus, and Philip and Andrew bring those Gentiles to Jesus. Philip and Andrew are, are two Greek names among the disciples. And so these Greeks naturally gravitated to, gravitated to a guy who had Greek name. And so these Greek disciples, Greek-named disciples, bring the Greeks to Jesus, and Jesus says, My hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the rest of the book, then, is Jesus' private teaching to his disciples, and then his death, burial, resurrection, and appearances. John's book is unique from all the others, and we'll deal with John probably later on. So two things I've given you that are Mark's of the Gospel of Mark. One is uh, immediately. The other is amazed. People were amazed at Jesus. Let's read just this passage about Jesus' baptism. Now I want you to see how Mark handles the, transfig uh, the uh, temptation of Jesus. Verse 9 in chapter 1 says, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. This is about a 70-mile walk. And was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, this indicates the, the type of baptism he went, went under there, that he actually went under the water. And as he came up out of the water, it says he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, Luke says, in bodily form. So everybody could see this. At least John and Jesus saw this. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Amos and Hosea, the two prophets in the Old Testament, both prophesying in the northern kingdom about the 8th century B.C., Amos and Hosea both refer to the Messiah by the name David. David. David means beloved. God calls that name over Jesus right here. You are my son, the beloved, literally. Ha agapetos in Greek. And it's the word David in Hebrew. So Jesus is the David who is to come, prophesied by Hosea and Amos. And God calls him David here. With you I am well pleased. And then look at how Mark deals. Did you notice the whole trinity is here? Jesus is being baptized, the Spirit's descending, and the Father's speaking. 
The word Trinity is not a Bible word, but the concept is definitely biblical. Put down, and if you're taking notes, put down Isaiah 63. <clears throat> In Isaiah 63, you will see a clear uh, foreshadowing of the Trinitarian idea. <clears throat> he says there, Yahweh, you are our Father, but we grieved your Holy Spirit, and the angel of your face, or the messenger of your presence, became our Savior. And so you got the Father, Son, and Spirit there. Isaiah 63. Yes. Question. Isn't it possible that there could be more manifestations of God? Yes, it is. God may be multidimensional. We really don't know all there is about God. Uh, the three that are revealed to us. Uh, the thing about God is, His nature is, He is a... He is a bridge between the polytheism of most ancient cultures and the legalistic monotheism of the Jews. He is really in between. He is one. We are monotheists. We believe in one God. But he has three faces. He has three persons, at least. The Hebrew word for God is Elohim. You've probably heard that before. That's a plural and in Hebrew, plural means three or more. So he at least has three persons. And we may find out that he's more dimensional, has more dimensions than we know. And I really think that the father image, the son image, and the spirit image is trying to give us something simple that we can get a hold of because he's much more complex than we'll ever know. Um, he's infinite in all his attributes. And so I think our world, our lives will be in the next world to get to know him. And we'll never fully know him. Have you ever thought about that? You know, Scripture says we will see God. We'll see him face to face. The early fathers called that the beatific vision. To see God. You know, if you look at a sunset and admire that, my wife and I sat up on the Canadian side of the Niagara Falls and ate incredible food on the 17th floor of the Radisson and looked out at the entire falls, the American Falls, the Bridled Falls, and, and the other side falls. What's it called? Horseshoe, Horseshoe Falls. Um, and we were just eating and talking and looking at that, and I said, you know, <clears throat> if he can make something this incredible... Think how incredible he must be. If he can paint a hundred miles of sunset and sunrise every day, always different, never the same, think how amazing he must be. I think he loves variety. You look at the variety of Jesus' miracles. You know, Jesus didn't, as C.S. Lewis says, Jesus didn't do miracles like some invading being from some other place. He didn't turn ships into snakes, you know, like in the Greek myths. Instead, he does miracles that are all natural. Changing water into wine. You know, water had always been changed into wine since the flood. The water goes up into the vine and into the grape, and the grape naturally ferments. You know, he just speeds up the process. Uh, your body was made to heal itself, and so when Jesus heals... He's just speeding up the process. When he multiplied the bread and the fish, he's been multiplying the grain in the field and the fish in the sea forever. And so he's just speeding up the process. So his miracles are natural miracles. Even walking on water. I don't know if you've ever walked on water, but I have. I walked across two rivers one time, the Fox River and the Illinois River. In the middle of winter, boy, was it cold. And the wind was whistling. And when the, when the warm wind would come, you could hear the ice breaking up. There were pieces of ice as big as a house that would bounce up above the rest of the ice. You could hear it crunching and, and groaning and, and uh, whining. We lived two miles from the river and could still hear it when the river began to break up. Just 
If you've ever lived up north, you know that the, the ice flows just become enormous. God made the world so that, well, God made water so that when it freezes, it would be lighter than when it's a liquid. And, of course, when it evaporates, it's even lighter than that. But this, this is, we live in a world that Jesus expressed in all his miracles that he had charge of nature. When a storm came up, and they were terrified, and they were bailing, and they wake him up and says, Master, don't you care if we're going to die? Help us bail, you know. And he gets up and says, Peace. Be muzzled. It actually, be muzzled, you know, like you would talk to an animal. And all of a sudden, it was just calm. And you could see the ships standing against their reflection in the water. And amazing things that Jesus did. But it was all nature. Yes, sir. John was decidedly loved and gone. They, they were probably, for he was probably closer to yes, he was. Jesus than anyone else. But when he sees it in, in Revelation, that's right. It's, it's not the same. No, you know. <laughs> At the Last Supper, John leaned back against Jesus' chest. You know, they're lying on one side, and uh, that's how they ate. They ate off a table about this high, and they lay down on cushions beside the table. They used unleavened bread for napkins. They didn't have napkins like we do. And here's, here they are eating this meal, and the disciples are all asking, who's it going to betray you? Who's going to betray you? And John leans back his head against Jesus' chest and looks up into his eyes and says, Who is it, Lord? And he says, It's the one that dips the bread with me into the salt water. They had several things on the table there. And, you know, John was so close to Jesus. But yes, when he saw him later on the island of Patmos with his face shining like the sun and his eyes like flames of fire and... Uh, you know, his body glowing like it had come out of a furnace. John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. Yeah. There's more to Jesus than just the human being that people walked up to, the human being that they nailed up on the cross. There's something incredibly glorious there, and we will get to see him. And according to First John, we will see him as he is, and we will be like him. That's our hope, First John 3. I love that passage. He says, It does not yet appear what we will be, but when he appears, we will be like him. The person next to you, you, are glorious divine beings. In John 10, he calls you gods. You read that? He said, I said you are gods, and the scripture cannot be broken. That's his words. We're like divine beings. If we could see ourselves as we are on the inside, C.S. Lewis says if you could see yourself as you really are, you would want to fall down and worship yourself or run away in horror. Because on the inside, we're being changed. You can't see it. When you look at the outside, you see we're being changed the wrong way. You know, but when you look at the, if you could see the inside, you would see a glorious being. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another until we become like him. This is happening in us now. His resurrection is taking place in us. And in the next world, I think we will have what Jesus had at his resurrection. He was recognizable when he wanted to be and not when he wasn't. Remember walking on the road to Emmaus with those guys? Luke 24. He goes in, and he's talking to them, and they don't know who he is. They say, we had hoped, you know, that this guy who was crucified was the Redeemer for Israel. And Jesus said, oh, foolish men, your hearts are dark. Listen to the word. And he told them about the Old Testament, where it predicted that he had to die and rise again. And he went and sat at the table. They still didn't know who he was until he broke the bread. When they break the bread, they raise their hands to God to pray. Break the bread, put it on the table or on the dish. Raise their hands say, Baruch atah Blessed are you, O Lord, who gives us bread from the earth. And when he raised his hands and raised his face, they could see the nail prints. 
They recognized him and he disappeared. One time he's in the upper room in Jerusalem, the next time they see him in Galilee, next time they see him up on a mountain, next time he's in James's room, talking to James, his younger brother. You know, instantaneous transportation, uh, unlimited by walls and doors. He just, he can be there and he can be elsewhere. If that's what we're going to be like, it's going to be amazing. And we'll have a body of some kind. I mean, the scripture says there's an earthly body and a heavenly body. And we'll have a celestial body, something unique. Uh, each of us uniquely made. Each of us uniquely loved. Uh, we each have a personal relationship with Jesus, not some doctrine. But he is our friend, and we are his friends. And there's an intimacy there. Now, the Word of God is, first of all, Jesus. Secondly, the preaching and teaching of the apostles and prophets. Third, the Word in Scripture. Fourth, the Word in nature. Even nature reveals God. And fifth, the Word in me and in you. In our relationship with God, one of my friends, uh, Roy Weiss, one time said, however much of the scripture you know, that's how much of you is going to be left after the resurrection. Because he says, only the word of God lasts forever. Everything else will be destroyed. What we are in this physical body, this body will go back to ashes and dust. We know that. Satan gets our body because that's where we sin. But when Jesus breathed out his spirit, on the cross, as the scripture says, into your hands I commit my spirit. The spirit lives on, immortal. And God can keep it alive for uh, in paradise. And even in paradise we'll have some kind of a body. I don't understand that. When uh, the transfiguration takes place, Moses and Elijah show up. And they were recognized like that by the apostles. They knew Moses. They knew Elijah. Elijah symbolizes the Old Testament, prophets. Moses symbolizes the law. It's like saying when they fade away and Jesus only is left, it's like saying Jesus embodies the law and the prophets. That's a way of saying he embodies the Old Testament. He fulfills the Hebrew Bible. He is what was meant back there. And when you study and get to know Jesus... You see that he is incredible, and he is unpredictable. C.S. Lewis says he's not a tame lion. You can't tell what he's going to do. There's a thousand people around the pool of Shalom, or the pool of Siloah, trying to get healed, and he heals one paralytic. I always wonder, why didn't you just say the word and heal everybody? But that's not how he worked. He didn't come to heal. He came to die, to show us how to live. Look at how Mark deals, look at how Peter deals with the three temptations of Jesus. Verse 12. At once the Spirit, now Mark used the word ekbalo here, to drive out, to throw out. At once the Spirit drove him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels came and were attending to him. It's an abbreviation. He doesn't go into the detail. He doesn't tell about the three temptations. Matthew and Luke do, and Luke's the only one that claims to do it in order. Matthew and Luke get the last two reversed. Luke claims that he's writing things in order, so... You know, this is the only place we knew that Jesus was with the wild animals. The only place we knew that at the end of, of this, angels came and fed him because he didn't make food for himself out of rocks. Would it have been a sin for Jesus to turn rocks into bread? Not really. He could do that. But the sin would have been listening to Satan and not trusting his father. And all three temptations of Adam and Eve, and all three temptations of Israel that they failed in, 
were given to Jesus. There are only three ways Satan can get us. John outlines them in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 15. I'm sorry, verse 15 through 17. Plugged in the wrong chip there. First uh, John 2, 15 through 17, he says, Don't love the world or the things of the world. For anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the world and its lust is passing away. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And those are Jesus' three temptations. And those are Adam and Eve's three temptations. You know, there's one verse back there in the third chapter of Genesis that says, She looked at the tree, she saw the fruit was a delight to the eyes, was good for food, and would make her wise. Three temptations. Lust the flesh, lust the eyes, pride of life. And those three are given to Jesus. And Jesus passes with flying colors. Okay, I've given you two things about Mark. The amazement, uh, the brevity and quickness, the action. And then one more thing is that Mark is abrupt at the beginning and at the end. In the manuscripts of Mark, there are four endings, and none of them is the original. Let's go back to the back of Mark and just look at that. Mark chapter 16. Now let's read Mark chapter 16 together. Do you have a line after verse 8? It says, Most reliable early manuscripts and ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. In other words... The earliest we see this in any manuscript is late in the second century. So somebody added this based on the end of Matthew and Luke. There are four endings. There are three others like this one. But something happened to the end of Mark. Either the manuscript was broken off or ripped off or... Peter was thrown in jail at this point. And so the story ends with verse 8. Let's read this. Verse 16, uh, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, who incidentally was the first witness of Jesus' resurrection. Have you ever thought about, you know, in the first century world, women had no value except, you know, that they could be bought and sold. Women were property owned by the men. This is not God's idea. This was the Jewish idea, the Jewish men. It's a pure patriarchal society. Women couldn't bear the sign of the covenant. Only men could, circumcision. Women were property to be bought and sold. Uh, when you get married, you buy your bride from her dad. And... Uh, you know, here's a woman, Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons in her. And Jesus cast those seven demons out of her. And she loved him the most, and she hung around outside the tomb. She was there earlier than anyone else on Sunday morning. And John is the only one that tells us what happened. That she sees Jesus out in the garden. And she says, Sir, where have you laid him? Where have you taken my Lord? So I can go to him. She wanted to go and put the spices on his body. I don't know if you've noticed, but the biggest shock in the New Testament is the resurrection. Nobody thought about it. Nobody believed it. We had hoped, the two guys on the road to Emmaus said, we had hoped that he was the Messiah who would, who would free Israel, who would redeem Israel. We had hope, but we don't hope anymore. Until they saw Jesus, recognized him. And then the hope was back, and they ran the 11 miles back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples what they'd seen. He appeared in the upper room, the doors locked. Amazing. All this stuff is just beyond amazement. They didn't believe it. 
And when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary told the disciples, they didn't believe. We saw the Lord. No, come on. You've seen somebody die and buried. You don't expect him back the next day, you know, or a couple days later. So Mary Magdalene, here, here's women were the first witnesses, the first preachers of the resurrection. Unacceptable in the ancient world. Jesus is elevating women to their proper place where they're just like men. The Apostle Paul saw this too. Galatians 3, right at the end of the chapter. He says, if you believe in Jesus, then you are all sons of God and sons of Abraham through faith. We're all sons now through faith. There's no distinction between male and female. In fact, Paul says so. There's no such thing as male or female, he says. But we're all one in Christ Jesus. And so women are elevated. See, women can bear the sign of the new covenant. No longer is it circumcision. It's baptism. And we can all be baptized. And so women are back where they're supposed to be. And women were the ones who loved Jesus and followed Jesus and provided for Jesus out of their own money throughout his ministry. Luke tells us that. Luke's emphasis is completely different from Mark's. But here's Mark at the end of his gospel. Mary, the mother of James, Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. See, nobody's thinking resurrection. They're going to anoint the body. They learned to do that down in Egypt. They learned to mummify the body. So they had special spices. If you've read the Gospels, the end of the Gospels, Matthew says that Joseph of Arimathea bought a big linen cloth as a shroud to cover Jesus. We have that shroud today. It's called the Shroud of Turin. You know, so far I've asked you to look up two or three things online if you have a computer. Google the Shroud of Turin. And if you look at it closely, you'll see a computer-enhanced image on that shroud. And the image is obviously of a man who has been beaten. One of his eyes is closed. Blood all around the top of his head. Blood all the way down his back and his legs. Blood on his side on the right. And blood on the backs of his wrists and between the metatarsal bones of his feet. And you can see it all right there on the shroud. And they say it is human blood, but it's so much a part of the shroud that it can't be typed. And it is human death sweat, but they can't get DNA off it. Wouldn't it be incredible? And uh, <clears throat> it's a negative image. And they, the scientists that examined the shroud said the only way that negative image could have been formed was a burst of incandescent light, light without heat, from the inside. And death sweat has in it nitrates and nitrites as the body, the, the meat of the body begins to exude this stuff. And silver nitrate is what's used in photography. And so somehow this image got formed on the inside of the shroud. I recommend to you to read it. I, I was at the uh, University of Dallas uh, in a doctorate program back in the late 70s, and they brought the shroud out. And I said to uh, the right Reverend Robert Ripson, uh, the guy sitting next to me, I called him Bob. Uh, anyway, he, uh, he called himself Bob, too. Uh, he was talking about the shroud, and I said, ah, you Catholics have to have your trophies, you know. And he said, have you read anything about the shroud? And I said, no. And he gave me two books and gave me a list of 14 articles in journals to read. And I read them and came back believing that it is the shroud of Jesus. It has pollen on the shroud that exists only in one place, the Dead Sea region several hundred feet below sea level. Uh, the shroud has been tested. Uh, 
you know, somebody said, well, but the, the uh, carbon dating uh, went back only to 14, 14th century. Well, the problem with carbon dating is it yields 20 different dates. And you choose the one that you think has the most advantage. When they, they carbon dated a snail that was alive, and they said it was 200,000 years old. A 200,000-year-old snail. Probably not. <laughs> Probably something wrong there in the carbon dating. And they, It had, and they may have carbon dated the patch. Yeah, and it has a written history that goes back to the sixth century. You know, so there's evidence of its ancientness. So Joseph of Arimathea bought that cloth, and then Nicodemus, and only John tells us about Nicodemus, brought 75 pounds of spices, aloe and myrrh, which they use on the body. But they didn't have time to apply it, so they put the spices down beside the body and folded the shroud over Jesus. It's amazing. You can see where the spices were in the, genia, in the, uh, in the shroud. It's, it's just, you know, I don't have to have the shroud to believe in Jesus' resurrection, but it, it's really nice. It's really amazing. I do, too. I think a lot of these things were kept for a reason. Now, you know, there's a lot of fraud, too. I mean, there's six boxcar loads of the original cross all over Europe, you know, so it's probably not the original cross, unless it's a lot bigger than we knew. Um, so they were going to anoint Jesus' body. That's why they were there. Nobody's thinking resurrection. See how shocking this is. And verse 2 says, Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on the way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who's going to roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? <laughs> They had no idea that stone was out of there. And it was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to show the world that he wasn't there anymore. But that nice shroud was folded up there neatly. And his face cloth, when they take somebody down from the cross, they put a face cloth over him because it, it's, he loses face, you know, it's, it's shameful. So they, they put a face cloth over Jesus. But when they got to the tomb, they took the face cloth off and folded it up by itself. It's, it's, there's so much amazing thing. No, I heard. Amazement. Yeah. Go ahead. I had one teacher about that. What they had put his face was a napkin. Uh-huh. And so he folded it up and in Jewish custom. I've, food, I've read that. Yeah, I don't think that's, I think that's probably a hoax that somebody started on the internet and it, it's floated around for a while. There's no evidence of that in the past, but it's an interesting story. Uh, verse 4, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. How many of you have been to that tomb? Anyone? Isn't that great? How big, how wide would you say it is, including the part that's walled in there? The, the actual entrance is maybe three feet, but the walled-in part on the right where it's bricked in is probably another three feet. So at least six feet, and then the, the tomb is tall enough that you can just barely stoop your head and walk in. So this stone had to be at least six feet high to seal that tomb. And there's, a, did you notice the trough on the outside? Yeah, it's, it's a wide trough on the outside of that thing, and so this thing would have weighed several tons probably. And it was downhill to the tomb. So they would roll it down into that trough, and then once it's down there, it's staying there. And so they're thinking about anointing the body. Nobody's even considered the resurrection. He, he talked about it in Mark's gospel four times, and every time he mentions it, Peter says the disciples didn't understand what he meant. I think if we'd been there, we'd probably be just as dumb, you know. Uh, they just didn't get Jesus. They didn't understand him. I will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. I will be scourged, and I will be crucified and buried and rise the third day. And Huh? Couldn't get it. Verse 4, but when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And, and by the way, in Matthew it says the Romans sealed the tomb, which means the Roman seal was put on it, 
And no one could open that tomb without all the legions of Rome being brought against him. But what are they going to do? Matthew says a, a face, an angel with a face like lightning came down, sat on the stone, rolled it away. John uses a word that means he rolled it out of the country. But I think first he rolled it away and sat on it so he could talk to the women. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. He rolled the stone Excuse me? He rolled it yeah, he rolled it uphill and kept it there, sat on it. So, it, you know, this was a tomb that had never been used. It was Joseph's tomb, uh, a wealthy man's tomb, uh, in a garden. And the garden is called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means an olive press. There are olive trees in that garden this big around that still produce olives. They've been there thousands of years. They were thousands of years old when Jesus was there. The Jews say they were planted at the flood, that, that they were planted by Noah. Probably not, but they were probably transplanted by somebody that came through. So here's the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, it was such a blessing to sit in front of the tomb, the empty tomb, and partake of the Lord's Supper out of olive wood cup and then turn around and look back over my right shoulder about 150 feet as Gordon's Calvary. And you can still see the shape of a skull, though it's, it's collapsed a little bit. You can still see kind of a mashed skull shape there. Golgotha means the skull. And... Uh, so here's the, the death of Jesus takes place on Golgotha. He's moved to this tomb. The stone's put in place. Nobody's thinking of resurrection. And when they get there, here's this young man. Uh, angels in the Bible are never women, and they never have wings. There are beings with wings, like seraphs and cherubs and other things, but n no angels with wings. They're all men. And this is a young man uh, dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, sitting over where Jesus' head would have been. And they were alarmed. They were terrified. And he said, stop being afraid. You notice that that's the first words out of every angel's mouth? Uh, the, the shape of the Greek means stop being afraid because they're already afraid. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as I have told you. Just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Click. Mark's over. And it really bothered some early writers. So there are four endings that were added later to the Gospel of Mark. No one knows what happened here to the ending of Mark. Some say Peter was, at that time, thrown in jail. And Peter, according to First Clement, who wrote at the same time John wrote, both Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome. You probably know the story that Paul was taken out on the Ostian Way, east of Rome, and forced to get on his knees and put his head on a chopping block, and his head was chopped off, heavy sword with both hands. Uh, scholars say that you can live, your head lives for several seconds. And there was one man who told a friend, I'm going to blink my eyes in the basket when my head falls in the basket. And you'll tell how long I'm still alive. There'd be no pain because you can't feel pain. And he blinked his eyes 11 times. Isn't that interesting? So it's really not quite as instantaneous as you might think. But Paul was beheaded on the Austrian way simply because he was a Christian. And Paul and Peter, because Christianity under Nero... The first time Paul was with Nero, Nero thought, ah, this guy's harmless, and he let him go. 
But the second time, he was arrested in Neapolis. Now here, if we ever study the pastoral epistles together, uh, Timothy and Titus, uh, you'll know this, but after the book of Acts closes, there was a fourth missionary journey that Paul made. And Clement of Rome, who writes about time John does, tells us about that trip that Paul made. He says he dropped off Timothy in Ephesus. He dropped off Titus in Kenosis in Crete. And then he took ship to Spain. And there, you know, in, at the end of Romans, Paul says, I want to visit Spain. So he does on the fourth missionary journey. All the ancient churches in Spain, which, by the way, is being run, overrun by Muslims now, but all the ancient churches are called the churches of St. Paul because he was there. Just like in Corinth, the biggest building in town is the Church of St. Paul. Uh, he was in Spain. He went all the way back across land to Macedonia, to the city of Neapolis, north of Greece. And there they found him and arrested him, the Romans. And they took him back to Rome. And this time, he's thrown not into a private house where he was before, but now, since Christianity is called by Nero religio illicita, an illegal religion, he's thrown into the Mamertine dungeon in downtown Rome. And that's where he writes Second Timothy. He says, bring my woolen cloak and come before winter and bring Mark with you because he's useful to me in the ministry. Read the fourth chapter of Second Timothy. It's a tearjerker. It shows you the old man Paul in a rat-infested, dung-filled dungeon. You know why it's called a dungeon? Because it's filled with dung. Human excrement. There was no way to get rid of it. And uh, if you don't have friends, you don't eat because they don't serve meals in that kind of a prison. And so he had a lot of friends there in Rome, a lot of Christians who came and visited him. But at the end of Second Timothy, he says, Luke alone is with me. All the others have gone. You know, they're afraid of persecution. But Luke stuck with him. Um, so on his fourth missionary journey, I believe he dropped... When he dropped Timothy off at Ephesus and Titus at Crete, then he, on, on board ship, going to Spain, I think he probably wrote 1 Timothy. Then he writes Titus, traveling across Europe back to Macedonia, because he tells Titus in the book of Titus, meet me in Neapolis in Macedonia. Well, when he's in Neapolis, he gets arrested. And there he take, he's taken back to Rome. And then from the dungeon, he writes Second Timothy. And that's his last thing. And then he's taken out. He says, I'm about to be poured out like a sacrifice. He knew he was going to die. Peter, on the other hand, after he finished speaking the gospel of Mark, according to the tradition of the church, which is probably accurate, was taken out on the Appian Way, west of Rome. And they were going to crucify him. You know, Jesus in John's gospel says your hands will be stretched out and you'll be taken where you don't want to go. Talking to Peter. Right at the end of John's gospel, chapter 22. And he's talking about Peter's death, John says. And sure enough, Peter was taken out and they were going to crucify him. And Peter said, I consider it an honor to die the way my, my Lord died. So they crucified him upside down. Turned him upside down. No respect at all for an old man, the leader of the apostles. So here's the end. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out from the tomb and said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. But when you look at the other Gospels, you discover after they were afraid and didn't say anyone, anything, they finally went to the apostles and told them what they had seen. And then the apostles don't believe them. You know, women couldn't give testimony in a court of law, so why would they believe this? Uh, these women are hysterical, you know. Well, Peter and John raced to the tomb, 
Only John tells us this. And John's the first one to get there. He's the youngest of the apostles. And that's why he's always hanging out with Peter, the oldest. And he gets to the tomb and he leans over and looks in. And only in John do we hear this. He saw that it was empty and that everything was folded up. And he believed. And Peter then comes and blunders on into the tomb and looks. But it doesn't say anything about whether Peter believed or not. See, they're still thinking in terms of somebody taking the body. But John's the first man to believe. The women all believed already. What happened to the Gospel of Mark? This is it. It ends with verse 8. And the additions here are not quite accurate. They're added later. Uh, not in the early manuscripts. Any comments or questions on this? Yes. Okay. When Paul confronted Peter. Because it was a matter of a faith, and he was an apostle. That's why Paul confronted Peter publicly. You're not supposed to rebuke an elder in public. But here's a case where he was a hypocrite and he was showing hypocrisy to all the people in the room. So you had to confront it openly. You know, if it had been a private sin, Paul would have talked to him privately. But it was a public sin. Peter repented. And Peter and Paul were friends throughout the New Testament after that. No problem. They're both in Rome probably at the same time. Though I think... Uh, Paul was probably killed later than Peter. Yeah. Any other questions about, about this? Three things about Mark. The word amazed. The word immediately. Lots of action. It's, it's all about, you know, Romans are interested in action. They're not interested in teaching. There's very little teaching in Mark. Did you see how short it is? It's 16 short chapters. Matthew's 28 long chapters. Luke is 24 long chapters. John's 22. And John's are longer than any of them. All right. No more questions or comments. I love this stuff. Uh, That could be. I have not really studied that passage that way. Yeah, that that's in John's Gospel, and I think it's chapter... Well, let's look. Um, I'll show you that when we deal with John in a little bit, I'll show you the difference, different sections of John. Um, yeah, uh, John 20... Both started running. This is Peter and John. He calls himself the disciple, the other disciple, you know, the disciple Jesus loved. They, now, listen to how Mary Magdalene saw it. She came running to Simon and the other disciple, verse 3 says, the, the, the disciple Jesus loved, and said they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and I don't know where they put him. See, this is before she saw Jesus. She went back there, apparently. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well, and the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head, around the head and covering the entire body. I believe that's a shroud of Turin. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linens. You know, it sounds like 
he's saying the face cloth of Jesus was folded and the linen was lying flat. Like the body of Jesus, if you saw Mel Gibson's rendition of, of uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection, you saw the body of Jesus in the tomb outside the shroud, but the shroud just collapsed. And that's probably how it happened. I don't know if you've really looked at the shroud, but you can actually see a dim outline of his internal organs like he passed through the shroud when he arose. Now, he's got the, the nails right in the middle of the hand, but the Romans never did that. They used the wrist bones because the weight of the body would rip out any nail in the hand. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well, as well as the burial cloth that had been around his head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen, so apparently the angels came and made the bed after he got up. Like, you know, a motel. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the, term, the, the tomb first uh, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They still didn't get it. Isn't it amazing? And here, verse 12, Mary goes back to the tomb and sees two angels in white. Verse 13, they said, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said. I don't know where they've put him. At this, they turned, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will, I'll go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, and called her name. And she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. My dear master. Jesus said, do not cling to me. She apparently fell at his feet and grabbed his feet. And he said, don't cling to me. I have not yet returned to the Father, to my God and your God. Amazing. The stories are amazing. And the, the appearances are over and over and over. Yes? Why are they so sure that the, the tomb that they had... Well, it, they they found the ark. We have pictures. Yeah, in uh, in fact, uh, CBS did a two-hour thing on the ark, and and interviewed people who'd been up to it, and brought back pictures and showed pictures. I had a guy uh, named John Warwick Montgomery, excuse me, who is a a real scholar uh, who teaches in Chicago. He got a Ph.D. from the Louvre in, uh, in France. He speaks several languages. And he got his Ph.D. at the University of Chicago. And John Warwick Montgomery has been up to the ark. And he took pictures inside and outside. And the ark has broken in half. There was an earthquake. And it fell down about 1,000 feet, uh, one part down below the other. But my brother was uh, one of two government advisors over the manned space project. And he was in the Pentagon one day, and he saw a file cabinet, and on the front it said Noah's Ark. And he asked the guy who was with him, is that pictures of the Ark? And he said, oh, yeah, we've got it from satellite, we've got it from flyovers. Uh, you can only get it certain times of the year, like late August after a dry summer, because it's encapsulated by a, gl a uh, glacier. And so there's all kinds of evidence. Uh, John Warwick Montgomery actually brought back pieces from inside the ark. And you lift it, and it, it's like rock. It's saturated with pitch and hardened. Uh, it's almost like it's petrified. Um, you know, there's just a lot of evidence about it. Uh, he came and lectured in our seminary, that's, and I got to take him out every morning for breakfast, and that's how I, you know, I got to know that situation. Oh, they, how they know? This is the only cave tomb in the Jerusalem area 
that is below the streets of Jerusalem, which means it's ancient. You know, when, when mountains wet weather, when they age, they shrink, and the mountains flow down into the valleys. So Jerusalem's streets are about 15 feet, would you say, above the tomb. And it is at the Garden of Gethsemane where we know he prayed. And it's very close to Calvary, which is off my right shoulder when I sat there. So it's a tomb that has never had a body decomposed in it. And it's an ancient tomb. Half of it's been walled up with big blocks, but the other half's still open. And I'm not sure why that was done. Maybe to keep the light out of where the, the slab is. Yeah, people would go in and break off a piece, you know, and they don't even let you in anymore. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, one of the great experiences of my life was communion in front of an empty tomb. There's pretty good evidence for that tomb. It goes back quite a ways. Do you have another question, Mickey? No, that's it. Okay, any others? Well, we've gone a little over an hour, so let's take a break, and uh, I'll call you back in a little while.